So the series we've been doing called The Culture of Discipleship has been in one part trying to get an understanding of what we mean by discipleship. What do we mean by being disciples? Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. What are we making when we're making disciples? And so we've talked about many things. We've talked about the fact that discipleship is about following a person, not a program. It's about following this person, Jesus, not just a historical figure, but someone who's alive. Jesus didn't just live on this earth. He didn't just do many miracles and teach many things, but he predicted his own death and resurrection and resurrected, showing himself to many witnesses and ascended to heaven in front of many witnesses and sent his disciples out to teach other people to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, we talked about how the word Christian or the name Christian, the label Christian was something that those who were mocking Jesus' followers named them. Oh, you're trying to be little Jesuses, little Christs. And so it came the name Christian. Now, they took that as a badge of honor, and so they took on the label Christian. But actually, they were first identified as disciples, as Jesus' followers. Then we got into the details of what that looks like, what the different aspects of discipleship are. And so today what we want to do is, using this text, we want to see how the first Jesus followers put these things into practice. How do they put into practice these aspects of discipleship? And what does that have to do with us here at Servants Church? Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, that sounds nice. It's good to know what people did 2,000 years ago. But why, what does that have to do with us now in the 21st century? Well, full disclosure, we at Servants Church are not looking to do something new. We're looking to do something true. We're looking to be authentic disciples. We want to be those who are following the Jesus of Scripture because we believe that Jesus is alive and help other people do the same thing. And so to do that, we want to go back to his book. We want to go back to see how did those first followers follow Jesus. And the reason we're doing this is because we really want all of us, I really want all of you guys here to, to, to grab hold of this reality. The best way to follow Jesus is within the commitment to a local church. Now, we mentioned last week that local church doesn't have to be servant's church. But because you're here, we're encouraging you that it would be servant's church. We're encouraging you that you would say, okay, I want to be committed to a local church, not just because it's good for me, but because I want to follow Jesus. And it seems to me that those who follow Jesus did so together. Now, to understand what's before us, to understand this text, verse 42 to 47 of Acts chapter 2, we have to identify who the they are in verse 42. It says, and they continued steadfast in these things. Who are the they? Well, first of all, we need to know, if you, in fact, if you don't know the Bible well, if this is kind of new to you, I'd encourage you to go back and read all of Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what you'll see is that these are 3,000 Jewish, mostly men, who were in Jerusalem for this feast called the Feast of Pentecost. And these men who had been there before had probably been to many other feasts over the years, which means over the, the, the three years previous at least, they had gone to the feast and they had heard of this rabbi from Galilee named Jesus. They had heard that he had done miracles. They had heard that, that, that he actually raised the dead. They had heard that he taught that he was God's son. He presented himself as the Messiah. They had heard these things, and these 3,000 who 
were there that day listening, they had decided, no, nah, we don't think he's the Messiah. And this is really important. Because what happens is that on this day, this Feast of Pentecost, what happens is Jesus does exactly what he said he'd do. Jesus, who's already ascended to heaven, sends his spirit upon his disciples. So 12 guys minus Judas equals 11, plus about another 100 plus people that are praying for 10 days, waiting for a promise that Jesus said. He promised them, listen, you wait in Jerusalem and I will send my spirit. And he will give you power to be witnesses of me throughout all the world, to give you power to make disciples. And so this is the day when the promise takes place. They, they receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter stands up, who was a coward just a matter of weeks before, and denied Jesus even was, he knew Jesus. That he stands up now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and begins to preach to these 3,000 people, actually more than 3,000 people. And he preaches a gospel that's really about Jesus. He preaches Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and that, that, that we need to put our faith in him. And as he preaches this, 3,000 of these Jews become Christians in that day. So these, they are 3,000 Jews who had formerly not believed in Jesus, but they're also 3,000 Jews who heard Peter filled with the Holy Spirit preaching the truth about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And these 3,000 also, listen, these are 3,000 who then turned to God. They repented. They turned away from their sin. They turned to God for forgiveness, and they were baptized as Jesus followers. Now, I don't know about you, but we're, we're just maybe right now in this room about 120, maybe a little bit more. Can you imagine if, if we're having this service that there's some, you know, the, the, all the guys who went to, the, all the people who went to the Little Mix concert last night, right? They all wake up from a drunken stupor. I'm just kidding. And they all make their way back here and they go, what's going on in there? And they hear me preaching the gospel. Say like 5,000, they hear me preaching the gospel. And I say, how about you guys? Do you guys want to believe? Can you imagine if 3,000 said yes? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That's actually what happened on Pentecost. That He's preaching to this crowd that's not there to hear from him. Peter's preaching to this crowd. And 3,000 put their faith in Jesus and are baptized to become Jesus followers. They are the they. And the reason that's important is that the things that we're talking about here, the things that Luke is recording about these behaviors, these are the behaviors of those who have decided to follow Jesus. This is not about moralism. This is not about, you know, four steps to your best life now. This is not about religious duties so, so hope someday maybe you'll get to go to heaven. This is about people who said, I want to follow this Jesus who's alive. And this is what they were led to do. Now, again, one of the things that I think is really important for us to recognize, especially because as Westerners in the 21st century, we really think of our lives as just that, our lives. We think like individuals. This is why some of you chickened out and didn't actually wear a name tag. Shame on you. I don't want to wear a name tag. I know some of your excuses, some of your excuses. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just, it's my privacy. It's your individualism. We're all the same way. We don't really want to be that known. We're shy. We're private. 
But actually, listen, the first Jesus followers wanted to be known and to know. They were in a culture that was more open, more family-oriented, more relationally-oriented than we are. But that was conducive to what it means to be a Jesus follower. We need to think about this because I, I, I really hope, if you don't get anything else, to the, to, then you get this. If, if you are already a Christian today, I hope you understand you cannot authentically follow Jesus by yourself. It's something we have to do together. He calls us to do it together. And this is what we see happening. So let's get into it. Here's the first thing we see these guys doing together. They came together for worship. Verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly. Now it's important that you understand that phrase. Because that phrase speaks of a commitment. That these early Jesus followers, they were committed to do these four things that we're going to see in a second. This wasn't a casual, if nothing better is going on on the weekend kind of thing. This was they were committed to do it. That's what the first Jesus followers were like. And the first thing on the list is they were, continued, they were committed to continue steadfastly in what's called the Apostles' Doctrine. Now, the apostles were those 11 guys who had seen Jesus from the time he started his ministry, from his baptism, and they walked with him all the way through. They saw him crucified. They saw him risen from the dead. They saw him ascend into heaven. Those are these apostles whom Jesus chose specifically and discipled them. He poured into them specifically that they might take the message of who he is and what he's done out to the world. And so what they did was their first priority as they're in Jerusalem with these 3,000 plus people is to teach them. That's what we mean by doctrine. It just means teaching or instruction. They taught them what they needed to, go, to know. And guess what the, the, the theme of their message was? You can read through the whole New Testament. It was Jesus. See, now what they would do is the apostles would teach the Old Testament scriptures in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the apostles' doctrine. They would teach the Old Testament scriptures in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, what would happen is, as they taught these things, people would get confused. And so guess what they'd have to do? They'd have to write letters to those churches to say, here's where you've, you get it wrong and here's where you got it right. Those are the letters that we have, or at least we have some of them, in the New Testament. But the point is, they were teaching the scriptures so that the people that were with them could learn about Jesus. The priority of worship, of the, the, the practice that they were pursuing was wanting to learn about Jesus. And notice it says, Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship. Did you guys notice that? Do, do your English versions say it this way? The Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, comma, breaking of bread and prayers. Like he's putting two groups together. He says, Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship. Now, fellowship, listen, is not just about having a cup of coffee and tea and having a chat. It's bigger than that. It includes that, but it's bigger than that. Fellowship is about us saying we recognize that we have a shared life. We have the same source of eternal life in Jesus. And we want to partner around that. We want to do life together around that. That's what it means. We're sharing our life together in Christ. That's fellowship. To do that, guess what? You have to know and be known. Hence name tags. Then he goes on to say, the breaking of bread. What's the breaking of bread? Well, that was what we might call communion or the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk more about that at the end because we're going to actually, 
remember the Lord and take communion together at the end. And prayers. Again, why are these two grouped together? Why is communion linked with prayers? This is why, listen. Communion is also often called uh, a giving of thanks or the Eucharist, okay? And the idea is, is that we're giving thanks to God, we're remembering what Jesus has done, and giving thanks to God for that sacrifice. Because we recognize that we're dependent upon that sacrifice for our forgiveness and for our righteousness. We sang today about being robed in righteousness. And that's about really this idea that when Christ died for us and rose from the dead, what we do is we, we, that, that provided for us a way for our sins to be forgiven, but also a way to make us acceptable to God. Theologians call it the great exchange. We say, God, we're giving you our sin. And God says in his son, I'm giving you the righteousness of my son. So we have this, this fixed position with God, this innocence that we didn't earn and we don't deserve. So when we remember communion, we're remembering that, remembering God, it was, it was the death of your own son, it was his broken body, it was his spilled blood that paid for me. Well, also, what prayers are really are, are just practicing our dependence upon Jesus. This is why Jesus says, when you pray, pray in my name. It doesn't just mean say, say the words in Jesus' name, though that's a good thing to say. It means that we are recognizing the reason I have access to the creator of the universe is because of what Jesus has done for me. And I need his interaction. I need his, his intervention in my life. Therefore, I'm going to pray. I'm going to practice that dependence. So the breaking of bread and prayers are connected together because they're all about us depending upon what Jesus has provided to move forward. And this is really important because this is, this is what marks an authentic Christian church. They have these practices. Now, let me be really clear. Those practices are going to look different in different churches with different traditions. But they're going to do this. They're going to say, we want to learn about Jesus and what the apostles taught is the authoritative standard for what we know about Jesus. They're going to say, okay, we want to share life together with Jesus. We don't want to just do church. We want to actually be together. Whether that it, it, it happens through small groups or one big group, whatever, but that's what we want to do. We want to do the sacraments, specifically communion. We want to remember what Christ has done for us. And we want to be involved in prayer. We want to actually pray to this God that we need. Now, this is stuff that, that we need to do together. This is stuff that God calls us to do together. This is why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, listen, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, let us, not, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And so the author of Hebrews makes it clear, listen, here's why we come together. We come together to stir each other up. Hey man, let's love each other. Let's meet this need. Let's do what needs to be, be done in Jesus' name. Especially as we know he's gonna come back very, very soon. This is what the exhortation is. This is what we're called to do together. This is why, listen, we want to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine and Fellowship, breaking the bread and prayers. It's to that end. So we can learn to love the way Jesus loves. Now what happens when they do this? Verse 43. Look what it says in verse 43. It says, so what happens when they do this as they're continuing steadfastly in these things? It says, then fear came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Fear. Now when you think fear, 
Don't necessarily think terror, like someone's going to kill me. But often people will say it's just reverence, but the problem is we have such a low idea of the term reverence into the 21st century. I don't think that's a strong enough term. So this is not, it's a little bit less than terror because we know even though it's a fearful thing, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God, we know that he's already taken our judgment. We deserve on himself through Jesus. And so we don't have to fear judgment, right? So we're not terrorized about his judgment. That's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to be afraid of that. But it's more than just like respect. It's more than just like, hey, you know, come on, this is Jesus. Show some respect. It's bigger than that as well. The, the sense of fear in the, in the scripture is this idea that, that the one you're fearing is whose opinion you value most. So when the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it means when you are more concerned about what God thinks about your life and about your actions, then you're fearing God. And so what's, what we see here is that as the Holy Spirit's working in these first Jesus followers, and as they are committed to come together for worship, for, to make this authentic practice of doing these things, what happens is they begin to experience the power of God and the first fruit of the power of God is a fear of God. A sense that, you know what, God, whatever you say goes, what you say is best. And there's something in us that pushes back at that, isn't there? There's something in us that says, I don't want someone telling me what to do. At least that's the way I am. I, I, I am fully aware of my kind of natural rebellion. I used to think it was just maybe my personality or my upbringing, and I don't think those things helped, but it's really my nature. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, let alone some God. We want to push back. We don't like authority. We don't trust authority. And let's be honest, we look at who's in authority and they give us reasons not to trust. But when we look at Jesus and we see what kind of God we can serve, we realize, no, there needs to be authority and it needs, that authority needs to be His because that's the only good place for authority. See, this is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is us recognizing, God, you call the shot. What you say is best. What do you think about things? What do you want from me? What do you want for me? Fear is an aspect of trust. God, I trust you that you know what's best. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in these first believers. They have this reverent humility, this God, whatever you say goes attitude. Now also with that came these wonders and signs, these miracles. The book of Acts is full of miracles that are done primarily through the apostles. In fact, it says here in this context, of course, that these wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, why through the apostles? How come they get all the corner market on the miracles? Can't anybody else do miracles? Well, yeah, sure. The Bible's really clear. Other people do miracles. There's no doubt about that. But why the apostles? Why was it that they seemed to do more miracles more often, even what the book of Acts describes as unusual miracles? Why is that? The reason is this, listen, those signs and wonders, those were confirmations of the apostles' authority. That when they were bringing a message saying this message is from God, 
That was confirmed by doing things that only God could do. God was doing those things through them. They themselves were not God. They themselves refused worship or even any exaltation. Again, you can read that through the book of Acts. But they, they did have an authority that was unique to them, which is why we see the Bible as uniquely authoritative, because this is the words from them. This is the apostles' doctrine. And God gave them supernatural ability to confirm that we could trust this is from them. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he says, For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words but also power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know our concerns for you from, from the way we lived when we were with you. So Paul says, listen, when I came to preach the gospel to you, I didn't just say, here's some new information for you. God used me to do supernatural stuff to confirm that this was from him. And not only that, listen, God the Spirit was working in your heart so you knew in your heart of hearts, man, this is true. I have no reason not to believe this. This is why we start early here at Servants Church. There's a, a small group of people, we love it to be bigger, but there's a small group of people at 9.45 to 10.15 that are praying that the Holy Spirit just, just does just that. That he confirms in your hearts that you have no reason not to trust him. See, this is, this is what's going on. As they gather together for worship, as they're committed to this authentic practice, you know what happens? They experience the authentic power of God. He changes people's lives. Now, sometimes people want us to, uh, to change kind of what we do. Oh, come on, John, you're being too simplistic. You need to be more creative. You guys gotta do this big thing and that big thing and you go to this event and go to that event. You can't just kind of do these four things they did 2,000 years ago and expect anybody's lives to change. I beg to differ. Not only because the scripture says so, but because I've seen God changing people's lives through this simple, basic commitment to this authentic practice. When there's authentic practice, we can trust God's gonna move in authentic power. So they were together for worship. But also notice verse 44, they were together as family. It says, now all who believed were together and, all had, and they had all things in common. Now, one of the things that's going on here is that they really did believe Jesus was going to come back. I mean, they, 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 Jesus said he would come back. You know, as he ascended to heaven, they're all staring up going, now what do we do? You know, Jesus ascended to heaven. And they're just kind of waiting. And an angel has to come and say, why are you sending him to heaven? The same Jesus will return the same way. And so they're going, okay, cool. We'll go pray for 10 days or, or longer. And maybe he'll just come back and then he'll set up God's kingdom on earth and everything will be done. That's what they were waiting for. And they were so sure that Jesus could come back any day when these 3,000 people became Christians. You know what they did? They sold all their stuff and put it in one big pot and said, we're going to just live together and wait for Jesus to come back. We'll bring as many people as we can, but we'll just kind of do that. And this is what they did. Now, we'll see in a second that that didn't work out too well. But the heart is absolutely right. A heart that says, listen, we want to do whatever it takes to host one another, to be together, to be hospitable, to make sure that we can stay together until Jesus comes back. That was their heart's desire. That's what hospitality is. Hospitality is not just having someone over for a nice meal or a cup of coffee and dessert, which we're encouraging you guys to do this summer with the Summer Challenge. But it's actually saying, I want to make sure that we can develop relationship. 
Because we want to be together until Jesus comes back. So we want to be committed to developing these kinds of relationships. The Apostle Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. And this is why, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And what, how do you do that? Well, he says it. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So I want you to notice a couple things about this. Not just what he calls us to do, but what he expects us to experience. Peter expects us to experience, guess what? A multitude of sins. <laughs> He expects that we're going to come together as broken people and have to love each other anyway. That's the idea behind a love covers a multitude of sins. You know what else he expects us to do? Be tempted to grumble. It's so hard to get on with these people. Christians are so weird. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, they are. No, you're part of the they. He expects us to do with, or be tempted to grumble, but he says, no, listen, we need to have the priority of love. And love shows itself in saying, I'm going to endure with people and their weaknesses, and I'm going to pursue relationship with people. So loving hospitality towards one another, that's what we mean by family. But also look at verse 45. Verse 45, he says, And what they do, they sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. I love this. This is what I would call a gospel-centered generosity. They were so excited about the good news of Jesus' return and setting up his kingdom. They couldn't wait for that to happen, so they wanted to practice what that was going to be like even now. God, we want to do whatever it takes to look as, as, like people, to be people who are under the reign of Jesus, because we know when Jesus comes back and he reigns, everyone's going to be like this. Now, now here's a reality, Okay. A reality is, and we're going to read about this in a second, is that they did this expecting Jesus to come back anytime, and he didn't come back, did he? And so what ended up happening is these people had sold their lands, they were then stuck in Jerusalem. <laughs> and there's a great, when there's a famine that came uh, in that area, they were stuck in Jerusalem, and there's a lot of poverty among these people. Which is why we see Paul writing what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to this. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. So he's telling the Corinthians, hey, i got to tell you this great story about these Macedonian Christians and, and, and how God showed his kindness through them. Listen. He says, They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. In other words, no one was saying, send in your $10 seed faith and you'll get $100 back. No one was doing that kind of nonsense. They begged us again and again for the, notice, the privilege of sharing in the gift for believers in where? Jerusalem. So even when the believers became totally poor in Jerusalem, and there was no more money to share about. What were they doing? The church had spread all throughout the Roman Empire. And poor people were making sacrifices to send it to other even more poor people, specifically believers to believers. This is gospel-centered generosity. This is what God calls us to practice. I've had, over the years, people... Uh, kindly complain about the fact that we don't pass a plate. Usually it comes in the form of, you know, you should encourage us and welcome us 
to worship with our gifts. We want to worship with our tithes and offerings. Why don't you pass a plate? You know, this is, you're, you're keeping us from worshiping. And I said, well, we're actually not keeping you from worshiping. There is a box in the back. That's why we started mentioning the box in the back because I got too many complaints. There is a box in the back. If you want to say, God, you're worthy of, of my generosity because you've been so generous to me, boom, there it is. But also, the reason we don't pass a plate is because we want you to know how generous God is, not how generous we're trying to make you to be. Because I'm convinced, guys, that the only thing that's going to ever motivate us to be generous like the way the Macedonian churches were generous is if we know Jesus the way the Macedonian churches knew Jesus. They knew how generous he was to them. Because they knew the good news about who Jesus was that motivated them to be this way. This is what it means to be family. And, and I mean this very seriously. I do not doubt that something's going to open up for Philemon. At first I was getting really stressed out this week, but then I thought about, gosh, just because everyone I can think of has already has someone in their house, that's actually a good sign. Well done, Servants Church, that you guys are so generous with your homes. I'm sure someone else is going to do that as well. Why? Because I believe that we are a family, that God is making us a family, that he's made us a family in the gospel and he's making us a family collectively. Now also notice in verses 46 and 47, they weren't just together for worship, they weren't just together as a family, they were together in the community. This was not some sort of a holy huddle where they separate themselves. Look at verse 46. It says, so continuing daily with one accord, that means they're like-minded, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity. Two places they spent their time. The first one was in the temple. Now at this point in the early church history with the first believers, they were still just seeing an extent of Judaism. So the, the Jewish community had not rejected them yet. They thought they were a bit odd and some sort of sect, but they hadn't sort of started to persecute them full on yet. That's going to happen quite soon after this, but it hadn't happened yet. So every day at three o'clock when it was time for the men to go to temple in Jerusalem to pray, guess what they did? They went with the other Jewish men and they prayed. In other words, they were intentional about like-minded engagement with the, the current religious culture. One of the marks of a cult is when they say, nobody else has it right except us. Now, I want to be really clear about this. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. We cannot know God. We cannot be saved apart from Christ. There is no other name. There is no other religion apart from Christ where you can be saved. But we also recognize different churches do things differently. And so we're okay with engaging with those people. They're our brothers and sisters. We want to love those people. We don't want to be separate all by ourselves. We got it right. Everyone else has got it wrong. We don't want to have that mindset. Now, of course, we're doing things that, that we think are important, and they don't do some of those things. They don't think they're as important. But the truth is we're still, if we're doing these, committed to this kind of authentic practice, we want to engage. But also it means this. Listen, I think there's also an application for this. We want to engage with people who have other faiths. Not because we worship the same God, we don't. But because we don't worship the same God, we want them to know the true and living God. That's why we want to engage with them. Sarah and I are blessed to have friends who are Hindu, friends who are Muslim, and they are our friends. These are lovely people that we appreciate. They appreciate us. And we, we enjoy being with them. And we talk about stuff. 
I'm always saying, you guys can try to convert us and we'll try to convert you. They go, oh, we'd never want to convert you. I go, well, I can't make the same promise. <laughs> because we want to engage with people. We don't want to become this kind of people that are insulated and isolated and away from everyone else. That's not what the first Christians did. In fact, and the second thing they did was they didn't just go to the temple, but they went to house, they went house to house. It says in verse 46. And they, they were breaking bread and they were eating their food in, in simplicity and gladness of heart. Now, this probably refers to the fact that they didn't have church buildings immediately. They met in different houses. But also, listen, when they meet in these houses, it would be something that everyone in the neighborhood would be invited to. And they would often have, like what we're having here now, a bring and share meal. And that meal would either begin or end with communion, with remembering the Lord's table. And, and they would go into these neighborhoods because the idea was not just to preach in the temple. The idea was, let's go to where people are. Let's be about going. Let's not just say, well, hopefully they'll show up at the temple one day. No, let's be about going. This is exactly what Jesus called us to do. In Matthew chapter 20, it says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go. We're called to Go. But we get to verse 47, and here's what we see. In verse 47, it says that what they were doing is, as they're doing this, they're eating their bread with simplicity, they're remembering the Lord, they're engaging with people that aren't yet Jesus' followers. They're praising God, and it says they're having favor with all the people. What does this mean? It means they were developing what we might call a God-honoring reputation. That, that they're known as those who actually fear the God of the Bible, trust the God of the Bible, walk with the God of the Bible. That's who they're known for. Now, how do we deal with this compared to the fact that, you know, Scripture tells us, Jesus says, right, that don't be surprised if everyone hates you for my namesake. Well, that comes later, don't worry. That happens in the book of Acts later. But the point is, they weren't pursuing being hated. They weren't looking to be marginalized. They expected it to happen. They knew it would happen, but that's not what they were looking for. What they're looking for is to build bridges with people, to share Jesus with people, and they lived in such a way that they had a God-honoring reputation. And this happened as they did it together. Do you know what, you know what people who don't know Jesus need to see? They need to see people who do know Jesus loving each other. That's what they need to see. And for that to happen means we need to engage with them together. Can I give you a practical idea about this? This summer, if you're thinking about inviting some of your neighbors around for a barbecue just to get to know them and love them or whatever, invite some of your neighbors, specifically maybe some of your unchurched neighbors. Invite your neighbors, but also invite someone from the church with you. Not to gang up on them, but to demonstrate real Jesus love. To be there to say, look, we want to engage. To be able to act in a God-honoring way. And what happens when they do this? It says in verse 47 that the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. They were trusting God for the increase. Now it's interesting. We're talking about living in a God-honoring way. We read earlier 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Well, right after that, this is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 6, 7, and 8. He says, 
You became imitators of us. You know, as we came, we preached the gospel, we lived the gospel for you, and you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit, and, you so, and so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You, you had a reputation, these guys did. Everyone said, that's a great, great group of Jesus followers, man. We want to be more like them. And as they did this, more people were added to them. And here's what Paul talks about this when, the, when it happens in the Corinthian church. Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So, so the reason this is important is We are not trying to get, at Servants Church, we're not trying to get bums on the seat, people through the door. That's not our goal. Our goal is to see people connected to Jesus, to know Jesus personally. If you're here today visiting and you got questions about uh, about the Christian faith, we're so glad you're here and we so hope we can answer those questions. But listen, we're not interested in you just becoming a part of this church. We want you to be a part of the church, capital C. We want you to know Jesus as he is. We want you to be connected to him. And if you get connected to him somewhere else, that's fine, as long as you're connected to him. We want you to know him, and we're trusting God's gonna give the increase. We're trusting that God has to do something in your hearts that he did in ours. This is what we're praying for. This is what we desire. 